Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Pete Irvin, a climate scientist. And I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. Each episode, we bring on a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. In this episode, we spoke with uh, Professor Yan Minx, um, who is an expert on decarbonization and, and all aspects of the transition to sustainability. But more recently, someone who's put a lot of effort into working on things like the IPCC's um, big assessment reports. And his expertise now, or one of his areas of expertise, is evidence synthesis and the application of new methodologies and tools to do that better. What I find interesting about Jan is the scope of his expertise is broad and stretches across a number of disciplines in a way that makes him uniquely positioned to synthesize information like what's found in working group three. He's trained as an environmental economist, but he's drawing together a wide range of knowledge from both the natural and the social sciences. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And, and the fact that he's then not just worked on how to apply that knowledge into a synthesis, he's then started to think quite deeply about how do syntheses work? How can they be improved? How can we be more systematic? And how can we apply new tools and techniques to improve them? So yeah, I think that he is a great person to have on to discuss this report and um, how to do them, how to do them better. If you're enjoying this podcast and episodes like this, please consider rating us or reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere. And please consider supporting us on Patreon. There is a lot of editing, producing, and other work that comes along with making a podcast that takes up a lot of time. With your help, we'll be able to pay for some professional support, which will help make this podcast sustainable for us in the long run. Uh, we don't want to have ads in these podcasts, so we're hoping that you can chip in a few dollars or pounds a month. Uh, go to patreon.com slash challengingclimate to help support the show. Well, it's our pleasure to welcome uh, Jan, Professor Jan Minx. Um, he's head of the Applied Sustainability Science at the Mercator Research Institute on Global Commons and Climate Change. And he's a visiting professor of climate change and public policy at the Priestley Center at the University of Leeds. Uh, Jan works on a wide range of topics across climate and sustainability, working to evaluate pathways to climate neutrality, carbon dioxide removal technologies, and the trade-offs and co-benefits of climate policies, amongst many other things. Uh, Jan is an expert on evidence synthesis, applying AI techniques to the problem, and developing new evidence synthesis methods for policy advice and global assessment reports. And Jan has just been putting this expertise to use as a coordinating lead author of the IPCC's sixth assessment report, and as part of the team negotiating the summary for policymakers, which was published just a few days ago. So to start off, Jan, could you tell us a little bit about your background? First of all, thanks for having me. Uh, Very nice to see you. By training, I'm an uh, environmental economist, so I, sta- I studied that at the University of York. Uh, started off in Germany, actually never finishing because we had those, those studies that take longer, and I uh, took a shortcut, did a master in environmental economics uh, at York, and then uh, basically um, moved on with a PhD there, really diving into the uh, topic of uh, carbon footprinting, uh, input-output modeling, um, this sort of thing to understand the consumption-based accounting. Um, Working on that for a few years, 
and then uh, basically taking over the technical support unit in um, IPCC um, in the fifth assessment, supporting Ottmar Edenhofer when he was the co-chair of Working Group 3. And that really changed my research life in many aspects. I got really interested in climate scenarios, really interested in climate policy evaluation, because uh, there's really not enough evidence from my perspective. But I also, um, at some point, you know, because we have those thousands and thousands of references in the IPCC, I, 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 I went, I, I saw this uh, study in, in Nature Climate Change by Krinaisen and Zhang, I, I think. And they did, it was just a short piece, you know, doing, uh, trying to answer the question, how much, uh, how many scientific papers are there on climate change? And they just redid their query to get a more recent estimate for the AR5 cycle because I was intrigued and I wanted to know how much we covered roughly. And uh, it came out to be only in the web of science, like I think 115,000 um, publications during the, uh, during the AR5 cycle. And then I was thinking, wow, so we only cover actually a sizable, but just, you know, just a fraction of those. And what is actually, does that mean for an, uh, for an assessment probably like the IPCC who has a mandate to say, okay, you know, we are doing comprehensive assessments of the underlying science and, you know, what are, um, where, does it, uh, where does it lead us? And basically I followed that route now um, a lot along two tracks maybe systematic review methodology so the stuff they're doing in in health sciences and trying to think how we can use that in uh, in, in policy evaluation and uh, also extensions of that that not only looks at uh, quantitative evidence but also qualitative evidence but uh, basically just the idea that also for reviews you need a methodology not just the uh, impenetrable windings of your brain because I feel even as a reviewer that it's hard to review a review because you don't actually know how to evaluate it at the end of the day. I know whether or not I like it and whether or not I share this, but uh, what happens if I don't agree with the assessment? Can I then reject it? You know, that's the, the one area really using and developing methodologies for, for basically transparently assessing science on in the space of climate solutions. And then the second, you know, just how can we now really deal with the sheer amount of evidence that is out there? And that's where the machine learning stuff comes in. You know, can we not actually do better um, on some of the areas um, using, you know, cutting-edge natural language processing methods, for example. We'll turn to some of those topics in the second half of this episode. We'll begin by diving into the recent report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. A few episodes ago, we had Robert Limpert, who was a, an author on Working Group 2 report, of the IPCC. And uh, here we are with the release of the Working Group 3 report. Jan, can you tell us what the scope of Working Group 3 is? Yeah, Working Group 3 um, basically focuses on climate change mitigation and therefore complements Working Group 2 on impacts and adaptation and Working Group 1 on the physical climate science. 
And we're here today because the sixth assessment report, the sixth cycle of reports from the IPCC has now been released with the exception of the synthesis report. But the, uh, uh, the reports of the three main working groups have now been released. And these assessment reports don't come out often. Uh, assessment report five or AR5 was uh, eight years ago. And here we are at AR6. What are the, the headline messages of the working group three report on mitigation in the latest uh, assessment report cycle? I would say the first one is we are still, as a global society, stuck in the age of fossil fuels. So we are still growing emissions. So it's a 270-year trend now. And we haven't bent the curve. There are individual countries who have done so. And this is also highlighted. There's a growing number of countries doing so. And we are also getting better on some of the technologies you need. Um, some of them really you know, doing better than we would have expected. but. We are still stuck in the age of fossil fuels. I think that's important to recognize. That's the first. The second one I would say is that we really have a decisive decade if policymakers really want to keep warming to 1.5 degrees. The current pledges by countries, so their emission reduction commitments, they have uh, basically put forward under the um, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change really um, fall short by some margin to uh, keep warming to 1.5, but also doesn't uh, don't set us on a good track for two degree. Just as a side note, where I always feel that you know since we are have been starting to discuss 1.5, sometimes I I, I feel that people think we have already back pocketed two degrees, but that's by no means the case, right? So we are not on track for both, but for for uh, for 1.5, it's now a decisive debate. You know, the budget that is left is about 500 gigatons of CO2 for a 50% probability of keeping warming um, to 1.5 degrees. And last decade, the last decade from 2010 to 2019, we've basically um, used up about 410 gigatons of uh, CO2. So we really need to start curbing emissions. That's the second uh, message. We are not on track. The third is there are still pathways to um, to basically limit warming to 1.5 and 2 degrees. And these pathways are very different in their nature. So we have uh, pathways that get uh, to net zero emissions earlier and a little bit later that have higher residual emissions in the second half of the 21st centuries and that have that have more carbon removals at the same time. And I think, so there, are, there is still a, a space of choice. It's important to realize that we cannot keep warming to 1.5 degree in the same way, like two degree. If you, if you look in the SPM, the category is called with 1.5 with uh, no or limited overshoot. That basically means almost all of the scenarios basically slightly overshoot 1.5 and then they come back. And that also means, you know, you need net negative emissions. Those play a critical role in these scenarios. I would say important message here again, just to, to think about what we what we are up to. Um, 1.5 degree scenarios quite consistently go to net zero in 2050. So from now 30 years, less than 30 years. 
to basically bend, not, not only to bend the curve, but what we've built up in 270 years, we need to bend down and uh, reduce to, to, to net zero in, in about 30 years or about 50 years for two degree steep challenge but there are pathways and we can do this in very different ways with pathways the the working group three puts forward illustrative mitigation pathways um, some basically focusing on renewables so there are pathways that are very um, that have high shares of renewables others have low energy demand others are more consistent with with broader sustainability objectives and they have very different implications. And I think, um, but they also highlight, you know, that we, that there's not this one way of doing it. And there's uh, lots of scope also um, for political decisions. And I think that's, that's an important point there. But yeah, so the third message, basically, um, there are still pathways to 1.5 and 2 degrees, but they are really challenging. But they, but they are available. Fourth message, I that's really bad number, right? You should only have three usually, I think, <laughs> from a communications perspective. But I have a fourth, unfortunately. No, there are, um, if you look at 1.5 scenarios, to keep it well within reach, like in, in least cost scenarios, they approximately half 2019 emissions by 2030. There is also an analysis of mitigation options. And interestingly, that uh, assessment says we have mitigation options that can cut our emissions from 2019 level half by 2030 that cost 100 US dollar or less. And half of that are costing less than 20 US dollar. So I think that's an important message because it says if there is impetus from the political level, it is nothing that we cannot afford. So there are many options, you know, that are already cheaper than fossil fuels. And there are other barriers basically prohibiting them for coming in at this moment in time. Um, and there are a lot of options that are low cost. So it's affordable and, and they have um, a lot of potential. So th these are my four messages. Now, carbon dioxide removal seems to be an issue that's receiving uh, growing attention in recent years and is an area of real debate. So what does this new report say about these technologies? In terms of carbon dioxide removal, I think it's an interesting report because I think, I think there is a lot of important clarification that is done. It basically says, I would say, listen, governments, if you say net zero, you have already said yes to carbon removal. And now you should think about it. And I think that's an important message. Of course, the community is well aware of that, but uh, but I think it's an it's an it's an important message uh, to be acknowledged by governments, and that basically then also you know lays out the typical stuff like you know that's the first use of negative emissions basically to compensate for residual emissions, and then there's yeah of course net negative emissions. We already talked about this. A second um, choice we we can see in many scenarios. And then um, also, of course, to accelerate mitigation as a, as a third way. I think there's also some some nice work on the typology, just to go get away from this crude distinction between technological solutions and nature-based solutions, because 
that's not really applicable for, for many of them, right? What is BACS, for example, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage? Is it nature-based? Is it technology? What is biochar? You can even talk about biochar. Biochar, you also need equipment to produce it. And uh, so it's a, it's a technology and there's a, there's a, there's vast literature on how to do this uh, in the best possible way. So, so basically, the the new um, the 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 work there highlights that it might be useful to think about this along two lines. First is how long can the carbon be stored? You know the residual times of the fixation, um, and the second is you know what what is the capture process. And then just basically, is it photosynthesis-based net biological process? Is it a, a geophysical, a geochemical process? Is it a chemical process, etc.? So I think that's um, that's that's quite useful to to clarify the discussion, um, and of course products, uh, the, the 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 fourth one, obviously, um, to to store. And so um, I think that's uh, that's another useful clarification. The fourth one, I think. Um, it has been said in the literature a lot, but it's an assessment of the literature, right? There is no not this one silver bullet. We need to think about portfolios, which technologies we have. We see in the scenarios that they're actually starting with removals right away. You know, many of the technology, uh, many of those, you know, more technological um, options like direct air capture, even though we have the first commercial applications, it will take some time, right, uh, for them to get uh, really, really large amounts out of the system, but but so there might be kind of this natural order, right? You start off, you know, on, more on on land based options, and then at the same time you invest heavily in the development of the uh, of of those others, and then you work with the portfolio, and and it's clearly outlined, you know, countries, you know. There are a lot of options, you know, choose, pick and choose your ones, try your ones. You know, there is no, there is not this one, this one silver bullet or this one preferable from a scientific point of view. Thinking in general of mitigation options, in your eyes or in the eyes of the report, what are the lowest hanging fruit, the easy options to accelerate uh, uh, reducing net emissions and what's the most important high fruit, something that is, is out of reach now, but is critical that we aim to reach in the upcoming decades? I mean, low-hanging fruits, like first of all, what we consistently see in the in the in the scenarios, right, is um we need to get out of the coal. And I think that's also explicitly stated. And of course, that's a that's kind of a negative choice, right? Moving away from something. But what's the replacement, coal in the power sector particularly, what's the replacement renewables really? I mean, now I think there's a strong message that, you know, solar is pretty cheap uh, in many areas. Uh, wind um, has a large potential. And we have now a, a substantial number of countries that have addressed the concern that our um, electricity systems can't deal with uh, with a high penetration of renewables, and I think there we also, you know, this whole literature that has emerged um, around integration of options. You know, we we increasingly realize, you know, that the transition, you know, in the transport sector might be, you know, uh, related to also how we can run our electricity system because, you know, batteries 
battery storage in cars can be used. Um, a lot of uh, smart options in that space. In general, I think that these are kind of obvious, you know, low-hanging fruits, and I think and, and critical ones because we need to get out of the coal, and we cannot go out of coal by going into gas, right? So I think that's very, very important. In terms of um, those important ones that we don't have, like from my perspective, it's really um, uh, carbon capture and storage is a really important one because, you know, I'm German and I know all about, you know, the problems also with uh, social acceptance of uh, carbon capture and storage. So we need to acknowledge that this is a critical technology that we need in different spaces for me, CCS in the in the power sector doesn't make sense at all for various reasons, already for cost reasons, etc. But also because we really, uh, we, we, shouldn't pre- uh, we shouldn't pretend that from now on we will be able to scale that technology really, really fast. I think we, we will have a greater, much greater demand for CCS than it will be available. I mean, that's at least, uh, you know, how it has been going. And the report is also very clear that these kind of larger technologies, those kind of larger energy system technologies, are actually show a worse performance in terms of their scaling behavior in innovation processes. Um, like granular technologies um, usually do better um, in that sense and, and, and show higher learning um, curves um, and so on. So CCS is one, and related to that, also the carbon removal technologies that depend on it. I I see actually, actually great promise in direct air capture, uh, personally, and I think it's it will be an important one in various con- uh, contexts. I think there is some scope for syn fuels. I don't. The report is very much on batteries in in transport, but I think I'm always. Just, you know, I'm not an expert in that space, but I'm always getting nervous when people know that it will be just one technology. And maybe that's maybe that's how it will be. But but I I think there will be also be in demand for synth fuels. So um direct agriculture also kind of uh, versatile, but um above all, we need also those more um those uh, technologies that really sink the carbon in a way that we are fairly confident that it stays there for longer time periods. I think that is something we haven't figured out. And if we look at the rates of uh, of removals that we see in those scenarios and these gigaton numbers, I'm I'm a bit nervous that um, that we will have that capacity at that scale. But to give a sense of of the scale of carbon removals that that that, that we're talking about, to put everything in perspective. To be honest, uh, net emissions of greenhouse gases currently are are approaching 60 gigatons per year, carbon dioxide equivalent. That converts the other uh, uh, greenhouse gases over to CO2 in terms of their um, capacity for warming, let's say so, things things such as methane. The scenario that I saw in the in the document says that in the models that are would have a two-thirds chance of limiting warming to two degrees uh, this century, we're going to see uh, somewhere between 200 and 650 gigatons total of air capture, whether that's with bioenergy or not, and approaching 250 gigatons of, uh, of, of carbon capture through afforestation and, and reforestation. So just some back of the envelope calculations that suggests 
uh, 10 to 15 gigatons per year total of, of CO2. Am I, am I right with that sort of rough math? If we're looking at that over the century, if we're looking at hundreds over the, over the century, we're looking at tens per year. I mean, the scenarios, I mean, there are scenarios which use a lot less. And I think each scenario, I think, you know, it's not a statistical ensemble, right? So we need to be careful there. So I think there are still very different pathways. Even if we say we only need five gigatons, uh, you know, by 2050 um, of removals, I'm already a little bit nervous. I'm not a skepticist, you know, I think we can we can do this, but I think just my nervousness comes from the fact that, you know, we, we have experience about technological transitions and they take time. And um, so five, you know, billion tons is already quite something. Whether or not we can scale up, for example, uh, direct air capture so quickly, given that it involves CCS, I'm not so sure. You know, it's uh, for me, these uh, geological storage potentials, which are always assumed and, you know, allow CCS uh, to scale well in the models, they, I, I don't even doubt that they are there. I'm just nervous whether or not we can actually use them for various reasons. And so my, my feeling is always we need a, a strong recognition that we need to have that capacity, but we also need to be very aware that we need to develop those capacities and make that funding available now to bring those technologies there. And the third thing is uh, to recognize you know, that we shouldn't bet on them at the same time. So we need to, and I think that's also a very consistent message from the report, because even those scenarios which are supposed to be less ambitious in the short term are hugely ambitious in, you know, when, when it then comes to the moment when they kick in with climate policy, because they even in a steeper way uh, reduce emissions. So we need like super strong emission cuts. Um, and I think limiting our dependence on carbon dioxide removal to the extent we can, knowing that we, you know, can't fully and we may even don't want fully to, you know, we, we can be dependent on it, but limiting um, large-scale dependence that we really need these technologies to achieve the goals to the extent we can, I think, is, is a precautionary advice, I would say. Let's talk about carbon removals and budgets points toward a fact that I think is underappreciated, and that's that carbon dioxide is a cumulative pollutant. We think about the pollutants we're, we're used to. So let's say uh, uh, acid rain precursors, that if you uh, reduce the rate of production of acid rain precursors by half, then the acid rain becomes half as bad within a couple of years or so when a new equilibrium is, is reached. Uh, excuse me. Because the old acid rain falls out of the sky ends up in the rivers, ends up in the oceans. CO2 is different. It accumulates. So in order to stop global warming, we have to reach net zero emissions, not just reduce emissions, but actually zero that out. And that's how we end up with this idea of a carbon budget. And you can think about this in terms of like a financial budget. You have a, you have a pot of money and you're spending money at a certain rate and you don't want to go broke. So you can think, well, uh, I, I, I'm still spending fast, but I can rapidly cut my spending in the future. And I think that that's something that we're worried that we've been seeing in the series of uh, uh, series of climate policies and in the series of IPCC reports 
that staying within a warming target is still uh, technically feasible, but it does often kick the can of hard work a little down the road. And especially with negative emissions, it's sort of like saying, yeah, well, uh, I'll get a job next year in a way of saying that I'm going to do something in the future that'll increase my budget, right? Yeah, I mean, I fully agree. I mean, I can I can only say I wholeheartedly agree with what you say. And the one thing that I would that I would say is that I don't think that the delay in climate policy had anything to do with any anticipation of governments that there will be this bullet. They were, at least once I talked to, they were not be so aware about carbon dioxide removal. They were, I think it was very much a science-led discussion coming out of AR5. You know, some people, I mean, they were already in AR4, but it was really only this larger discussion after AR5, people coming out saying, you know, you're not really showing this in any figure what's going on here are you trying to hide it and of course this was not the ambition or that it was not what was intended at the time but it was just that the community you know producing those scenarios for them it was clear that it was there right and there was a headline finding on this so there was no perception of hiding but in the wider community this was not so clear and so i think and that also holds for the policy community and i think For them, the change was really net zero. Since they accepted the idea of net zero, I think they have been aware, and that has lots to do with the Paris Agreement, right, which has kind of very explicit language on it. Since they've heard net zero, I think they have started to think about removal. So, as I said, I fully, I fully agree, but so far, at least in the discussion, even though emissions continue to rise, but I don't think that this was because of the existence of the idea of negative emissions or carbon dioxide removal technologies. This, I think, where it will actually be very interesting to see, and there I, I perceive already a slight shift is in the context of burden sharing under the UNFCCC because countries are now realizing you can go below zero. What does this mean? So basically, it means that in principle, for example, industrialized countries could theoretically pay back the entire debt they have accumulated over time, right? And that, of course, now means that the discussion, which was never an open-ended one, it ended always at zero, right? now doesn't have a lower limit anymore. And and I think it will be interesting to see those d- dynamics. And my fear is that there a real moral hazard could creep in and that, you know, some countries say, okay, you know, we want to grow our emissions further. And, you know, if you are not compensating for this, this is not our problem, but, you know, you had your carbon in the past and now don't blame us. Right. And you're speaking from the view of, let's say, a developing country. And when you say you, you're pointing the, the your conversation at the already industrialized countries, right? Exactly right. So a country like like, like uh, India or Bangladesh or whatnot what says, look, it's, it's our turn to use some of the budget. And if you, industrialized countries, over uh, overspent your sh- fair share of the budget, well, you have a have an obligation to clean up your your debt through net negative emissions. I want to bring up another word that you used in an, in an earlier answer, and this is overshoot. And this is a word that I've been hearing increasingly in the climate change discourse, and it seems it's risen in prominence in this 
assessment report series from the IPCC. What it, what is overshoot? How important is it? And and how should we think about it in a mitigation context? So there are, I think overshoot is really like a term. IPCC is quite precise in the use, which means temperature overshoot, because people are also talking about, say, budget overshoot, right? And that's still a different thing. Temperature overshoot basically describes a situation where we might have a temperature target and we might just feel that we are not able to hit that anymore throughout the entire 21st century, which has always been the the intention, right? So typically, the two-degree scenarios had always been described as scenarios that throughout the 21st century stay below two degrees with a, say, 67% probability or 50% probability. And then already in AR5, in a footnote, the first 1.5 scenarios came in. Um, and then, of course, there was a special report on, on, on the 1.5 limit because really pushed towards the IPCC. It was not a product it necessarily wished for, but it was pushed from the UNFCCC that they said, we really need evidence on that because it's, you know, under the Durban platform, I think at the time still, there was this entire discussion on enhancing climate action. So basically, those scenarios already in AR5 only had a 50% probability to be below 1.5 in 2100. That was AR5. And then, of course, there were many more scenarios. But what was clear is that there is this, this target, this, this temperature target is already so ambitious that it will still not be possible to do a 60% probability to stay below 1.5 degrees throughout the 21st century. And so those scenarios got redefined. And you can see this now in the SPM table. I already alluded to this. So in the 1.5 categories, this is really important because it says 1.5 with no or limited overshoot, as I already said. And most of, I think only eight scenarios actually do it without overshoot. And all the others are slightly overshooting. And I think that's less than 0.1 degree. So they go to 1.6 max, and then they return to under 1.5 subsequently. And then there's the second category with high overshoot, and that is overshoots that are higher than 0.1 degree. And so I think temperature overshoot has become a critical concept because otherwise we wouldn't have 1.5 scenarios or only very few. And so it's... Basically, it is what happens when it's already getting really, really, really late and it's already maybe after 12 o'clock because you had this analogy from the financial sector, right? We, we, we need to take a credit with the atmosphere and pay back subsequently via net negative emissions. And that's what's happening for 1.5 to different degrees, right? And it still holds... Every centigrade counts. Um, so it's not, you know, hitting 1.5. And if you don't hit it, then who cares? But then, you know, it will. And it's also important to say if you have another dec decade like this, actually, we will be in the same situation more or less for two degree that we are now with 1.5 degree. And this is probably another reason why this is a very decisive decade as highlighted by the report. So I wanted to come back to something you raised in your introduction on your background and your research interests and kind of a philosophical question. 
how would we know if the latest IPCC report has done a good job of summarizing and reviewing the literature? I would, I would say it's an outstanding procedure it has, right? I think there are a lot of checks and balances, and they are transparent throughout the report cycle, and that is mainly the review process. So IPCC reports go through two rounds of review, and authors need to actually explicitly respond to each of those comments. And you know the responses are then publicly available also later on. This time round, just to give you an impression, we had nearly 60,000 comments, which basically highlights, you know, that we are also getting at a stage where this, in a volunteer process, yeah, it really pushes it to a limit. But I think that's the best I can say. So it's thoroughly, it's a thoroughly reviewed process. It's also a process with a diverse author team because, we are in working group three, right? It's not only about, I'm not saying that, you know, natural science is uh, value free. There, you know, one could have also long discussions, but I think it's not, it's safe to say it, it's not as prevalent as it's in working group three, where it's around solutions, you know, lots of stuff around burden sharing. It's a very, very value laden process, even, you know, in terms of if you try to avoid it, but even if you how to provide a balanced assessment, it really depends how you cut emissions, how you show emissions. Do you show production consumption? That's now my chapter, right? Production consumption based, deep historical, you know, per capita, per unit of GDP, you can get very different messages. And I think for that, you also need very balanced author teams. It makes sure that different different perspectives are also on the science are reflected because there is on all of these things. One is, you know, is it actually are the numbers the right numbers? But is what we provide also balanced? in the perception. And I think that's what the IPCC also tries to do, right? And I think there it has, it's the best we have. It's not perfect, but it's it's something where I'm always, always again, really surprised how willing individuals to invest a lot of their time voluntarily. I think you've covered kind of the thoughts I was going to bring up here, but let me just sort of drill in here. I guess some of the stuff you said you were doing uh, in your research is trying to come up with improved methodologies for conducting reviews and for evaluating them and for passing some of that task over to machine learning. So how, how can we evaluate reviews and how thorough and, and, and good they are? Maybe I've almost exaggerated by saying we are developing these methods. You know, we are, has a lot to do with importing them from other fields and, you know, applying them to, to climate in terms of the review methodologies. I think, I mean, we are doing science. And, you know, even if you want to do proper qualitative assessments, you need to have, you know, a clear methodology how you do things. If you cannot explain that anymore, I'm not sure you are still in the realm of science. Um, So there needs to be a yardstick. And I think ideally, we should outline that in a protocol so that it's very clear of what you want to do. And that's actually what systematic review people do, right? You first conduct a protocol. And we are doing this, by the way, in climate modeling, where I think, you know, the major, major achievements of the IPCC lie. Model intercomparisons really have been 
a synthetic tool that has been extremely successful to evaluate alternative futures and to also understand the past, particularly with, with regard to the working group one stuff on, on climate science, right? Can we understand natural processes in a way that our models can reproduce the past? Of course, with kind of integrated assessment models on, you know, emission reduction pathways, that's something more different because complex social systems, you know, where there are economic crises and all those kind of things that are hard to predict by a model, for example. But but there, I think the IPCC, you know, has done an excellent job and particularly the, not the IPCC, but the community surrounding the IPCC, who I like in my perception, which operates very much around that assessment. So CMIP is a couple model intercomparison project does an excellent job there. And I think it's absolutely breathtaking what is what is taking place there. Now, when it comes to climate solutions, is my is my would be my big claim, you know, stuff like what works, you know, what climate policies have worked, which energy policies have worked. A lot of also engineering stuff, you know, what are the potentials in certain areas, you know, what you know, all those kinds of literatures. I think there is no, there's not so much of, of a tradition to do reviews. Reviews, for example, in the social science are often um, given to people who are distinguished scientists and they are trusted and they can, you know, write a review in that top level journal, for example. And that might, I'm not debating that, you know, there are lots of, Good reviews. It will still to will still be hard to review them. So I think in my 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 proposal would be on these kind of non-modeling studies, and that's a vast evidence base that is evaluated by the IPCC, but also in all kinds of other assessments. That's not specific to the IPCC. It's a general problem in scientific policy advice. I would say we need to get to a position where. There's a paper and we say what we want to do, we'll outline this in a, like we, we outline the review we want to do with what kind of method. And then we do that. And in the health sciences, just to, to close this up, it has not always been like this as it is with their systematic reviews. They had the same discussions that we are having now or that we are starting to have, I should even say. They had like 20 years ago and 30 years ago, and you can read that in science and in nature, you know, where people are claiming, you know, these crazy systematic reviews, they don't do anything for us. We should just have traditional reviews. You know, this discussion led to a cultural transition, I would say, in their case, towards this kind of paradigm. And I think it has led to better treatments. But what is often forgotten is it has also led to less research waste because they're really systematically screaming, uh, screening, you know, what's out there. They have a process for, you know, registering their reviews to limit duplication. And also in terms of their primary research, they're actually you know, part part of systematic reviews, I think it's not so well known, is a stage that is called critical appraisal. And there you have cl clear criterion of internal and external validity for your study. And you lay them out and you basically evaluate each study. And that basically, that process we are lagging, I think, because it helps us to get better. If we are not saying this study is bad because it's doing a regression on 10 data points, 
and no, and it, it gets to publication, then we are really having a problem, right? And I think doing something like this, I think, is really important for those three reasons. I think we we get a better understanding of you know of really what what the evidence base says. So it's you know we'll know what the robust findings are and what influences. Then second, um, we will reduce research waste, and we have scarce resources in climate. So we, we should better focus them on, you know, the things we really need to understand. And the third thing is that we will also enhance the quality of primary studies. And that's what drives me really and uh, in, in many ways. And it drives me nuts. I, for me, it's really hard to describe, but it's a clear contradiction that we have that great stuff in the, in the intercomparison space on the modeling side and that other space where I think we are, we are doing much worse. What role can machine learning play and what are its limits for helping us conduct reviews and analysis of research? I think machine learning is always great, <clears throat> particularly great when, you know, you have lots of repetitive tasks. So um, one big application is in systematic reviews, people use a lot of time for screening literature and selecting relevant studies. But that is something an algorithm can do very well. Just looking at the data you look, seeing your judgments and reproducing this from the time when you are sufficiently confident. At some point, you may then be able to not having to review the entire literature anymore. Because what I, what I would say is that also the systematic review community is not unaffected by the flood of literature that you're seeing. So what they tend to do, because their standard is we have to review each and every return of to our query, to our search query. And, you know, if I do a gold standard search query, at least in the climate space, I'm getting tens of thousands of results. And I have little appetite to review them all. But we've really learned that this is where machine learning is very, very effectively applied. There are other spaces that are equally, you know, would be equally interesting when we have to, for example, ex yeah, extract effect sizes and, you know, put them in our, in our database. For example, a, a meta regression, you know, later on and all the relevant stats that we want to have. This is something where your training set will be still limited. Often we look at 300, 400 effect sizes and it's such a specific judgment that this is really hard for an algorithm to do. At least we have not been very successful. It can point you to numbers, you know, it can extract automatically tables, but the judgment is still yours. And I think so we need to, and for me, this is also the charm of the, of the field that it's very interesting in terms of finding the right balance between in this human machine spectrum. Then the last area where I think it's, kind of very effective is actually in those kind of the IPCC, I think does kind of larger scale things, right? They're kind of vast in scope. So for example, the ambition to look at what kind of climate impacts documented in the peer-reviewed literature. This actually just sparked a recent publication that we had in, in, in Nature Climate Change when AR5, you know, they had this table with impacts that could be attributed to climate change from about 350 studies, which was you know, an excellent piece of work, I have to say. 
But I was always doubting these numbers. And these numbers turned out to be very controversial also in the approval plenary at the time because African countries said, you know, look, we have, I mean, everybody says we have all those impacts and, you know, I can't see them on the map because there's less science there, right? And I, the authors just responded, you know, man, that's, we are fairly confident that that's all there is. And I started thinking so i i wouldn't be so confident about that i'm not so sure that you're actually misrepresenting african countries but i think there's a hell of a lot more then we did that study where we just looked into this and we took a much wider definition of what constitutes an impact but what we did and this is maybe also kind of a kind of a methodology methodological advancement we we took modeling data on impacts attribution on temperature and precipitation and at a at a granular grid cell level and overlaid this simply with evidence of climate impacts that were documented in the literature regardless what attribution methodology was applied and then we looked you know whether or not that impact what what the driver of that impact is, and we selected those on temperature and precip. And then we looked at that specific location, which we can extract quite efficiently from the study via machine learning, whether that whether that impact actually occurs in that grid cell. And basically classifying all those impacts and extracting all these locations, this is something machine learning can do. So we we found about 100,000 studies, actually, and we extracted the locations and overlaid this at a grid cell level. And I think, you know, that's kind of something that is interesting for the IPCC because sometimes they want to show a real overview. So mapping, but that's for me more mapping than synthesis, right? It's maybe somewhere in between there, but but that's, I think, machine learning is really useful for to see what's out there, classify this. This is actually also something we are right now doing for CDR to, to build just, you know, like a broad map of CDR that can be living in a sense that it's a machine learning pipeline that then simply can run and be updated and you can search much more efficiently and, you know, in the fields you're interested in. I just want to move on. Some of your work in the past, you mentioned, um, focused on concepts that help us understand decarbonization and the processes there. So yeah, can, can you give a definition of the carbon footprint? What is that? The way how we defined it was always a consumption-based view of attributing emissions. So for example, it's one thing to, to account for you know, what's happening on a particular territory or within that territory. This is what we do in normal emission accounting, right? And then the other thing is, you know, what the global emissions that occur throughout the, you know, global supply chains from the consumption that is taking place on that territory. So means what are, just to break this down, right? So what are the emissions, for example, that occur throughout the world for me drinking a cup of coffee while we are having this chat here or the production of this desk I'm sitting at or whatever, right? And so you have that vector of all the consumption that is taking place in a particular year and you get, you know, this other kind of sum of the total emissions that are related to this bag of consumption. That is what we usually termed carbon footprint. It, it's often also applied for lifestyle analyses, right? And those kind of things in, in life cycle assessment of products. This is also 
something. And that's what's often termed carbon footprint. What are your thoughts on the, the kind of moral character of carbon footprints? Um, is someone with a high carbon footprint um, less virtuous? Actually, there's a like a chapter in this IPCC report I really highly recommend you to read. It's chapter five. My friend and, and colleague here at MCC, Felix Kreuzig, and that's on demand side and social concepts of mitigation. And I think they are making a very important point. So as, as you said, I, I did some lifestyle analysis and it always was strange to me that I think lots of this discussion is, is really about you as a consumer, you should take responsibility for what you do. And, you know, and, and I was always very skeptical about this. So the first point is, you know, you need to be really thoughtful about, you know, what can people actually change? within a given infrastructure. And I think that's what they are making very clear. I think it's figure SPM6 also in the, I think it's SPM6 in the summary for policymakers. And it breaks down that kind of wedge from what they call demand-side solution into different components. And for most of the sector, apart from food, this component is quite small. So what you can get from the scientific literature, for example, from reducing your home energy consumption that's quite small, but getting, you know, the same service level, you know, when you suddenly, you know, retrofit your house, when you, you know, have a heat pump, and that also involves behavior, you know, we need to purchase it, this stuff. And also when we move around in infrastructures, that is the other point. So technology adoption is one, but also the infrastructure, we, we are moving in a context. And if I'm living, you know, in a big American city, and there are sim simply no cycle paths. And please apologize, you know, now with a cliche example, which is probably even not true. But just, you know, if, if you live in a city somewhere without, you know, cycle path and without, you know, sidewalks and you can only ride your car safely, then I think that's just something where you cannot expect anybody to do anything. So it's all about enabling choices, really enabling choices. And that's much more important important than the choice decision itself because our choices are biased because of the context and the context is that fossil fuels are subsidized the context is that infrastructures are the way they are etc etc so i think that's something that i think is really interesting in this report and i can only highly recommend to to read that chapter it's it brings together some really nice evidence I want to turn to something I think you and Jesse talked about a little. Uh, that's the, the feasibility of different scenarios, because uh, you can achieve different levels of emissions cuts in different ways. And I think maybe there's sort of three characters of assumptions. One is um, technological change, you know, what's available in the future. Another is kind of the, the ambition level or how much economic pressure does policy apply to, to changing behavior and, and the economy. And then societal assumptions about changes in behavior and lifestyle. So I just want to run through those. I think the discussion around carbon dioxide removal often brings up that point that you made earlier, that we're sort of betting on a technology that doesn't exist at scale. But, but can that critique also be applied to many aspects of mitigation? I mean, I think, I think some of the people who complain about carbon dioxide removal in these scenarios assume that we can have a 100% renewable grid and don't see perhaps the problem that no, no such grid exists today and there's technology technologies that, that are missing like the um you know grid scale weeks long electricity storage 
So what do you think about this? And how should we think about these technological assumptions? Just, just very specifically, I think we are still in a situation where I would think still rather the 100% renewables people are frustrated about the scenarios shown in the IPCC than vice versa, because I think that has been a big line of criticism throughout also the upcoming of the report. We've seen several publications actually that, you know, those large models are, may not always be up to date in terms of, you know, even the, and the data they're calibrated against. So there were, for example, this yeah, on solar, there were several ones because they come out with solar values that are rather conservative. But that's a side point. You're making a general point and that was just an example. So uh, let me answer that. In principle, I, I, I just want to lift this to a slightly larger level. I mean, to what extent does it actually make sense in a scientific assessment to establish a concept like feasibility? And I've been always been critical about this, also within the IPCC process. And that's why I'm also, you know, happy to say it. I'm not sure that this is the best direction a scientific assessment of that kind should take because I, I'm more of a friend to try to like philosophy wise to go into a direction where we say, okay, we show pathways and their economic, technological and socio institutional requirements. And rather, you know, laying out these assumptions that you are also, you know, pointing towards, I think is something more doable then to make this another judgment, how realistic this is, because exactly the point that you're making, we are thinking here about the deep future, right? It, there might be some trends we are more confident about and less confident about it. But I think the whole endeavor gets really complex. And I'm not sure whether or not that is, personally, I don't think that that is what the IPCC necessarily should be doing. I think it we should rather think about how to make those assumptions as transparent as possible. And that's challenging too, because the chapters are so small. I mean, even though it's a vast report, right? And the space to deal with an issue is, is very limited. And so my, my feeling is that this whole feasibility stuff is very fashionable. Now also we see this increasingly in journals. I'm not a, I'm not a big fan. And please, please, do come up with a follow-up question if you want to go into other aspects of that. But I think it's just when you say feasibility, you know, that does something with me. And maybe last thing, feasibility of options, which we, are, which we also find in this assessment, I think is even more controversial. And I, I'm highly doubtful that with a different set of experts, you're coming up with the same results. And if this is not the case, I'm getting a little bit worried because uh, I, I, yeah, I think we are we are trying to aggregate too much where we have too little information and too little scope to do to do justice to all those options in such a way. It's a quick follow up. What I did notice in this report is that unlike previous assessment reports, to my knowledge, it discussed in the summary for policymakers estimates of the price of the economic cost of aggressive mitigation. And one could say that cost is a proxy for feasibility. Many things are feasible as long as they're within the bounds of the laws of physics uh, with sufficient financial investment. And I think that that's a real step in the right direction, that it puts up and says, look, 
the type of mitigation that would be expected to give us a two-thirds chance of staying below two degrees will cost us a couple percent of GDP, but that's expected to be a net benefit relative to the costs of climate impacts that it would likely avoid. Absolutely. I fully agree, Jesse. It was also in AR5. They they did also do it in, in, in AR5, but I fully agree. I think that costs a very good proxy to see how difficult it is for the models. And there is a great paper, actually, you know, environmental research letter is a, is, is a great journal. But for, for me, this could have been published in, in Nature or Science by Gunnar Luderer, where he did a series of scenarios doing exactly that, looking at the, at the frontier. When the models getting to that frontier and then they are shooting up in the costs, right? That's all we need. And, and I think to, to say how difficult it is, it's not the same, you know, now, People of the current feasibility approach, you know, would say, of course, it's much broader because what we want to do is to put this into a context for the decision makers that, you know, if you bring together that other evidence on the, on the technologies, you know, that's what we think is the feasibility of the models. But I, I think simply highlighting how difficult it is for the models is already like a really relevant piece of information for that. So. I guess you kind of went against the, the theme I was trying to go for with these questions, but I, I think uh, let me just uh, plow on regardless or plow on in a slightly modified way. I think one of the critiques that's perhaps come from more the activist side has been the lack of ambitious assumptions about cultural change uh, in consumption. How do you think about those and, and how do we assess them? I mean, that speaks to the discussion that we had earlier with regard to Chapter 5. I think that is what they are trying to show. I think those wedges tend to be relatively small. So what you can actually, what you can actually do within a particular context, but changing that context, I think people need to appreciate this also needs, you know, a cultural change, right? So. We've seen many examples where people are not happy to adopt the technology. You know, they have views even on large-scale technologies they don't adopt themselves, but which are adopted close by, you know, say CCS, right? How large that is, I don't know, but I think it's particularly ill-discussed. So what I often sense from this community is, that there is this kind of idea that we if we if we have a radically different system then you know that problem would go away and i personally don't believe that and i also should make sure that we match what needs to be changed with the actors that can change it and i think what you know people can change is um, um is is limited and if cultural change you know means some larger social revolution or transformation, then I'm very skeptical that this is the best strategy to get to net zero in 30 years. Just, but yeah, but it comes down to that. I usually don't know what it actually means. And I think if it means lifestyle change, then I would say, you know, it's all about context. So we need particularly to work on the context and enable people to do the right choices. If it's about system change, that I'm not sure whether or not that go, goes into the wrong direction if you want to be rapid. And so I, uh, I think that would probably be a topic for another podcast. <laughs> Climate change can be a somewhat uh, disheartening, if not depressing topic. 
what in this domain gives you a sense of hope and optimism for the future? For me, it's really, it's, it's really all about the fact that I think technologies, we've seen technologies developing much faster. I'm not a technology enthusiast, and I'm also critical of several technologies, but I think technologies are the major part of solution if we think obviously because you know if we want to be carbon neutral i don't know even going back to the caves won't achieve that necessarily so it's it's all about technology and how fast can technology be and i think we have not seen like massive climate policies but still some technologies have done for different reasons much better than we would have expected and solar pv wind on the one hand with some little climate policy but also very interestingly batteries coming more from private sector dynamics. And I think, for example, there's also something in the carbon removal space that I'm also seeing. There's actually there's actually quite a lot of interesting activity in the private sector space that could lead to a lot of dynamics in a space where, I, in my perception, sometimes governments are leaping a little bit behind. So that's also kind of interesting. But, you know, if we now say... Once we bend the curve and start, for me, it's all about bending the curve. It's not about necessarily, you know, those deep, exact deep emission, redu uh, emission reduction numbers. But if, say, in a large portion of the world, or even globally, you know, we, we, we start due to, you know, climate actions in various places, start reducing emissions because, you know, we have, we've been starting to put those policies in place. I think that will unleash technological dynamics we cannot anticipate and the models have shown that they can, can't anticipate them. They are very optimistic on the institutional policy side. You know, there's just like a climate global carbon price kicking in and boom, everything explodes. But on the other hand, they have been quite pessimistic for really dynamic technological developments. That's what I'm banking on. I think that's the only thing I can think of. I'm, maybe it's just, maybe I... I'm lying to myself, but that's where my hope is. Professor Jan Minks, thanks for joining us on Challenging Climate. Thanks for having me. It was really uh, nice talking to you.